basketball, a game of giants. And there's number 99, George Mikan, one of the greatest. They try to go inside. Do have to lose the ball. Chamberlain gets the ball. Welcome to the Step Back Pod with Sam and Sati. The Step Back Pod is a basketball show where Sam and I step back in time to discuss the great players in NBA history. G'day everyone, yeah, apologies, it's been a, been a bit of a break sort of between episodes. Yeah, it's um, been a wee while, hasn't it Sam? It has. Uh, we've been sorting through all the fan mail, we'll get to everyone in time, but we're very excited to announce we're going to be releasing one episode per month, and this is also our first episode we're doing uh, together. Yes, absolutely. Sam and I, for you avid listeners who've listened to all three of the previous podcasts, will have known that we've been doing this over Zoom. So I hope you're enjoying this audio quality right now. It's been a real bitch to set up. Actually, I'm just going to jump in there, Sam. Sorry, um, just before we get into it, I want to thank Godfrey's Law and Jonathan Silver for hooking us up with a pretty sick microphone for today's episode. Yeah, if you guys need a lawyer, (laughs) um, hit them up. They're very good and provide very good mics for us. Absolutely. Uh, for you first time listeners out there, this, the Step Back Pod um, really came about because Sam and I are huge basketball fans slash nerds who love doing that one thing that all NBA fans love doing, which is arguing about the great players in history. But whilst doing that over lockdown, the New Zealand lockdown that is, we started to realize there were sort of huge gaps in our knowledge. And there's actually lots of players that have been forgotten over time or who are discussed these days without full context of their career and era being understood. So the whole idea behind this podcast was to explore those great players who have shaped NBA history since its inception back in 1949 and sort of provide that full context behind their careers and achievements and along the way tell the story of the NBA as it's developed over time. Do you have anything to add to that, Sam? No, I think you summarized it uh, perfectly. I mean... I'm first to admit I'm someone who will argue about players without knowing them um, <laughs> for sure. So yeah. it's been really it's been really good sort of going back and actually learning about these guys, um, everything from their basketball to their personalities, I guess, as well. Absolutely. I think, yeah, it's definitely been one of my favorite things is actually starting to get to know these names as more than just basketball players and stats. So on to this week's episode, well, this month's episode, should I say, the past few two episodes, we've profiled George Mikan, the first great NBA center. We profiled Bob Cousy, the first great NBA point guard. And on this week's episode, we're going to be profiling Bob Pettit, the first great NBA power forward, but also one of the best power forwards of all time. And for some of you out there, Bob Pettit might not be a name that you've actually heard of before or that much. He is one of the most forgotten all-time greats in NBA history. He played from 1954 to 1965 in that often forgotten 1950s era. But here's a few stats and accolades you should know about Bob Pettit just to set the scene. So Bob Pettit was a two-time NBA MVP, including being the first MVP of all time. He was All-NBA 11 times, including 10 straight All-NBA first teams from his rookie season to his second to the last season. Bob Pettit was the first NBA player in NBA history to score 20,000 points. He has the third most rebounds per game in NBA history at 16.2. And this is a man who's a two-time scoring champ, 11-time All-Star, four-time All-Star MVP, tied first with Kobe. We could just keep 
know, rattling off the accolades, but that gives you a sense of who this player was and all that he achieved. Tell us a bit more about Bob Pettit, Sam. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of dudes who have an insane resume who aren't sort of remembered, Pettit is right at the top of your list, I'd say. Um, you missed his, his nickname, Sadi. Some people called him Big Blue. Others called him the Bombardier from Baton Rouge. Ooh. It's quite, quite saucy. Very cheesy 1950s nickname, that one. Yeah, and cheesy's the right word there because his game was cheese. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> look, as a, as a power forward, when you're looking at all-time power forwards, you've sort of got Tim Duncan right at the top there. Whether you consider Larry Bird at power forwards, up to you. But then after that is Bob Pettit. Carl Malone, Charles Barkley, and probably um, Kevin Garnett. They're the four that follow, but obviously Bob Pettit's the one that's not talked about. Mm. He's the first ever MVP, and he's actually the first ever power forward to win it until Barkley in 92-93. Wow. So that's like a you know a 36-year span where no power forwards are winning the title, and he was sort of really innovative in the way he played, being a big man, but scoring a lot of his buckets outside, you know, being, I guess, what you'd say a 50s stretch big. And that is really, it is really fun to sort of think about how his game would fit in the modern era. But he also, he had an interesting team career as well. Definitely. Well, the thing that really stands out with Bob Pettit is that he's got the individual accolades, like I discussed. He's got the sort of all-time ranking, as Sam's talked about. But he's also was part of one of the best teams in the 1950s and actually on reflection one of the best teams of all time so the st louis hawks again not many of you would have heard about st louis hawks but they're the precursor to the atlanta hawks they were perennial contenders in the 50s and early 60s i'm just going to rattle off for you what bob pettit and the st louis hawks run was like so after not making the playoffs in his first season and from his third season onward um, second season onward, sorry, Bob Pettit made the Western Conference final, the final where he lost in seven games, the final where he won, the Western Conference final, the final where he lost in seven games, another final, then he missed the playoffs and then he made two Western Conference finals in a row. You know, that's a stretch of dominance that I, I really struggle to think of another team that good. The th- like, say a team that jumps to mind and say like the Cleveland Cavaliers in the 2010s where LeBron James led them to four straight finals or the Miami Heat where they were, went to four straight finals as well. But those teams are short-lived and they didn't have all those Western Conference finals at the same time. You're probably looking at like a 80s Celtics or Lakers in terms of finals and peak, you know, conference finals appearances. Um, so yeah, he wasn't just an individual player. He's like a really important player in NBA history with his team and also really important to note there the Hawks were contenders but they were contenders against one of the best teams of all time the Boston Celtics so all these finals they went to and lost they were losing to the Boston Celtics that you know won 11 championship rings um so in that way they're the Cavs to the you know the Boston Celtics being the Golden State Warriors of the 2010s essentially what do you reckon, Sam? Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, Pettit's first finals, he's up against a rookie, Bill Russell. How unlucky do you have to be as a sort of player mm. to come in at a time span where you're going to have a team that dominant? Yeah, looking at modern-day comparisons, you almost feel like Pettit is like the Carl Malone or maybe the Hakeem going down, going up against that um, that Bulls dynasty with uh, you know Jordan and Pippen. Yeah. And it is really interesting to think, again, how – 
how is his how is he seen differently if Russell never came into the league? For sure. Um, I hate to correct you, and we really should move on, Sam. But I just want to put it out there that what you just said is a classic person who overrates Hakeem move. Hakeem went to three finals, two of which were in the 90s. The Houston Rockets, apart from that, were never contenders. So I just want to put it out there. Bob Bob Pettit's success at the top end of NBA basketball. I'm sorry, but it's a lot easier to make the finals when there's eight teams versus 30. (laughs) Oh, I I just don't think that, you know, Hakeem and the Rockets and most of the 90s were true contenders at all. How hard, like, they they won two they won two titles back to back, and those are the two finals they made in the nineties. Yeah. All right, let's put this to rest, and that's it for our quick summary of Bob Pettit's career. And now let's hop into the episode proper. It's Bob Pettit Day in St. Louis. Actually, it's the hometown Hawks versus the Boston Celtics in the playoffs. Sixth game for the NBA championships. But it's Bob Pettit all over the place, running wild, as the Hawks, ahead three games to two, battle to win this one and saw up their first pro title in 13 years. Robert E. Lee Pettit Jr., better known as Bob Pettit, uh, which is just an incredibly American name can I put out there, was born in 1932 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, United States of America. Uh, for those of you who don't know, for all of you non-Americans out there, Baton Rouge is in the deep south of the state, so it's in the heartland of Louisiana, It's uh, which is, again, one of the, like, the classic southern states. When you're thinking the south, you think Louisiana, which the Mississippi runs through. It's got New Orleans, it's on, you know, it's on the coast, and Baton Rouge is its state capital. It's real interesting when you look at Bob Pitt as a player and how different he is from Bob Cousy, who we profiled yeah, previously. the New York street baller. The yeah. New York street baller, because... Bob Pettit was from a very different place and you wonder how much that played into his different mentality and his different way of approaching things. Yeah, I guess the personalities of the two sort of paid out exactly how you'd expect given their different backgrounds. Exactly. Um, You know, Bob Pettit grew up in Baton Rouge with his dad being a sheriff of the East Baton Rouge Parish, (laughs) um, who by all accounts seems like a pretty severe, hardworking man. Bob Pettit didn't make his high school basketball team, which Sam will talk to you about. And his dad just told him to work harder. So he worked harder. That was the sort of upbringing he had back in the 30s in the sort of southern state, which would have been, you know, height of segregation, heartland of the, you know, the deep racist south. Um, He grew up in a very, very different world from one that we can actually imagine. And it made, I mean, a very hardworking, very serious man, didn't it, Sam? Yep. uh, Bob Pettit for sure. A very hardworking Southern man, and you definitely see that across when um, he's talking in tapes later on in his career. But in terms of his young career, he starts off at Baton Rouge High School, and as Sadi mentioned, he was dropped from the high school team, which is becoming a bit of a theme from the players we've covered so far. None of them good high school players. Everyone's got a chip on their shoulder, right? Eh? <laughs> yeah, that all stems from high school basketball. If you want to become a great, just get dropped from your high school team. I got dropped from every high school team I was in. Does, do you- yeah, but you're unique in your sporting ability, Sadi, <laughs> or lack of. So, yeah, he's going to end up playing church ball, and he's going to hit the gen- genetic lottery, however, and combined with the hard work Sadi mentioned, he's going to grow five inches in his sophomore year, end up back on the team, and lead them to their first state title in 20 years, which is pretty insignificant for us, but... 
Pedit cites this title alongside his NBA title as the two sort of proudest sporting moments in his career. I feel like, so to put this into context, it'd be like if you didn't make the first 15 <laughs> in year 10 and 11, worked really hard, grew... First 15 for rugby for our international listeners. Yes, absolutely. Grew five inches in your year 12 year, joined the first 15 then, and then in your final year of school, led them to win the top four. Yeah, and before that, you worked really hard keeping your skill level up playing church rugby. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so he's going to win that title and then going to get a whole lot of college uh, scholarship offers, I think around 19. And he's going to end up at LSU, which is, it's a very high basketball university in terms of, I guess, college basketball. Uh, not one of the top ones, but it has had the likes of, you know, Shaq, Pete Maravich and the late superstar Ben Simmons. <laughs> um and look, he's going to absolutely dominate in high school. And sorry, he's going to absolutely dominate in college. In his final year, he's going to put up thirty-one and seventeen, and that's something you just expect with a dude who's going to be that dominant in his NBA career. But for me, what stood out was that work ethic in terms of his free throw shooting. He started off as a fifty-nine percent free throw shooter, and he's going to finish as a seventy-two percent free throw shooter, which just goes to show. Um, how much he's sort of willing to work on his the weaknesses in his game. Mm, that's like, it's it's rare that you see someone who's like quite like an average free throw shooter become quite a, like, you know, 72% for a four yeah. is pretty good. Yeah. And so that just means he put in work. Yeah. Yeah, and you can really, yeah. And then that just bodes really well for his NBA career, really. I mean, with the modern day NBA, it's more common to see dudes get worse, it seems, at the moment anyway. Yeah, definitely, actually. So he goes on to have a very successful career in college. Um, and obviously that's not our wheelhouse, so we won't get super into it. And we'll actually just jump straight into his NBA career. So Bob Pettit goes on to have one of the greatest NBA careers of all time, really. And I think that's putting it lightly. He's drafted out of his very dominant college career, second in the NBA draft for the 1954-55 to season. Um, he's actually drafted by... A team that's probably even less known than the St. Louis Hawks, the Milwaukee Hawks. Um, what, the Bucks? No, no, the Milwaukee Hawks. Oh, Trey Young and Giannis together. Yeah. So in classic NBA fashion, the Milwaukee Hawks actually started as the Tri-City Black Hawks. And then they moved. Is, is this a team that they were three cities? <laughs> yes, it sounds cities. like it. And then um, they moved to Milwaukee. And then after Bob Pettit's rookie season in the Milwaukee Hawks, they then moved to St. Louis before finally moving to Atlanta in the 60s. But anyway, that's all beside the point. I just wonder who actually had Hawks. Does Atlanta actually have Hawks? Well, where did they start? Because surely the first place they started had Hawks. You'd think But so. it's like the Lakers. They don't have lakes. Yeah, well, Minneapolis did. Minneapolis did. Yes. But anyway... So Bob Pettit's drafted second in the NBA draft for um, in 1954. He actually played center at college where he could, you know, despite his relatively small size for a center at six foot nine, dominate despite that. Um, it's quite probably quite big for college. Yeah, it's quite big for college. He was only 92 kgs, which is yeah. extremely light um, in this sort of modern day and age. 
But then, so he gets the NBA and they decide, oh, look, you know, you're probably a bit small to be a center in the NBA. Remember, this is around the time that we still have the George Mikans in the league. So the big man really is coming in strong. So Bob Pettit gets moved to the power forward position, which is where when you go back to his improved free throw shooting at college, that comes in handy. Because as anyone will tell you these days, one of the first signs of shooting is a good free throw percentage. That's how you can tell someone has a shooting touch. And it meant, and that shooting touch meant that Bob Pettit could translate from center, where he was playing a traditional center back to the basket game in college at the pivot, to a face-up power forward position in his rookie year. Yeah, and I guess um, looking at the game today and how interchangeable the positions are, you sort of forget how important positions were back then and how Mm. defined the roles were and how different you were going to be as a player based on this position you were assigned absolutely so yeah i mean i think we discussed this in the um george mikan episode but a center was the pivot was the name for a center back then and so they'd stand in the paint with their back to the basket and like literally be the pivot around which everything moved whereas as a power forward you're playing on the i guess what the perimeter was in that those days Uh, But I guess it's the high post. You're playing a face-up game. You're not playing that back-to-the-basket in the middle dominate game. So he really had to change his game around. But despite all of that, he still had one of the best rookie seasons of all time and one of the best seasons in the league that year. So rookie Bob Pettit in a new role, he averaged 20.4 points. was good enough for fourth in the league in points per game. 13.8 rebounds, which is third in the league in rebounds per game and 3.2 assists he was first he was i mean he was rookie of the year but more importantly he was first team all nba as a rookie um he was also second in the league in per player efficiency rating so for those of you who are into um, advanced stats and are also fans of per as an indicator of how who much the someone, hell is fit who's a who goes out and says i'm a fan of per john hollander <laughs> Uh, well, for those of you who don't know John Hollinger, he created PR uh, as a stat. But despite his dominance, the Milwaukee Hawks weren't great. They didn't win much and ended the year 26-46. And then you go into his second year and somehow Bob Pettit gets even better. So in his second year, so the 55-56 season, Bob Pettit ends up winning the first ever MVP award as a second year player he averages 25.7 points per game first in the league in points per game 16.2 rebounds per game which is second in the league in rebounds per game he's in in the all nba first team he's an all-star he leads the league in per which is going to lead the league in pr for the next four seasons after that and even better the well the now st louis hawks actually have some team success it's not real team success they end up winning 33 a win-loss record of 33 wins and 39 losses, um, which is good enough for third in the Western Conference. But they end up making the Western Conference finals (laughs) because um, they beat the Minneapolis Lakers in the second-place tiebreaker, which was a thing back in those days. And then they lose the Western Conference finals to the Fort Wayne Pistons. Damn. And yeah, first ever MVP. That's, That's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just one of those things, you know, this is a league with Bob Cousy, um, there's no Bill Russell yet, Yeah, but you know, it's not like there's a dearth of talent in the league, there's, yeah. there's actually quite a few really good players. 
yeah. that he's competing against. And he's a second-year player who's in a new position who ends up taking it away. And I think it's just, it's actually that scoring which really impresses me. You look at yeah. him and he doesn't look... You know, he's not... He doesn't have the touch. You don't think he has the touch or something to be this he volume scorer? That's, he doesn't look like he's got the athleticism. He's just like a... But he's, yeah, he's got he's got some speed. Mm. Um, he plays this face-up game where he can take you off the dribble and, you know, cut in and lay it in. He's a really strong player. He's got a great... Yeah, he's got a great outside shot. Well, not really an outside shot, but they didn't have a three-point line. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a mid-range for today. And he wasn't inefficient. I think, obviously, I think we talked about this, the 50s weren't the most efficient era in NBA basketball. Um, but, you know, he's shooting around 40, just over 40% from the field. But actually, with his free throw rate, you know, this man's averaging about 10 free throws a game. And he's shooting over 70% on his free throws. He actually ends up having one of the, like, the top 20 true shooting percentages in the league. Wow. Which, when you're leading the league in scoring, and you're all the well, guns... Well, his field goal percentage is still above league average. Yeah. And I guess that's what matters, right? It's all relative to the league you're playing in. But yeah, he he wins that MVP in 55-56. to 56. And just, just to remind you guys, MVP is voted for by the players. Mm. You know, the real dudes are actually playing and choosing these, choosing these awards. And yeah, he's going to go into the next season and basically... Another player is going to enter the league, which is forever going to alter, I guess, Bob, Bob Pettit's sort of trajectory mm. as a player. And not many people know, but the Hawks team he was playing on actually had the opportunity to to draft Bill Russell, but they traded away those draft rights for Ed McCauley and Cliff Hagen. Yeah. So, and, well, go on. so I was going to say, so what happened, yeah, so after a second year, so this is the 56 to 57 season. Yeah. Yeah, they have a high enough draft pick to pick Bill Russell, but they trade, yeah. So I don't mean to repeat. No, that's all good. Trade put, Ed, put a date on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they trade Ed McCauley and they trade for Ed McCauley and Cliff Hagen. Yeah. Both Hall of Famers, neither of them sum up to Bill Russell, of course. Exactly. And then send Bill Russell to the Boston Celtics, who yeah. end up being their greatest rivals, essentially. Yeah. And it's tough because McCauley and Hagen are great teammates, but you can't ignore what Bill Russell would have offered Pettit. I think we talked about this in the Cozy episode, is that what... Because McCauley was a guard and Cliff Hagen was a centre. And so what the Hawks were getting was like quite a balanced roster, yeah. right? Um, because both McCauley and Hagen could both score. And yeah. so it put some good support around um, Pettit. But the reason that the Celtics did it is because Hagen wasn't enough a good enough defender and they needed Bill Russell's defensive capabilities next to Bob Cozy. And they recognised that, and so they pulled the trigger on that trade. All right, so well, should we jump into, because essentially once they make this trade, from the third year onwards, you start to hit a real peak for Bob Pettit and the St. Louis Hawks. So do you want to talk about that, Sam? Yeah, for sure. So the team is just going to get better year on year. And look, the, the guys I've added are no bums. So Hagen, fun fact, I like to pull out him and Russell Westbrook are the only dudes who are six foot four or shorter to average more than 10 rebounds in a season and they're gonna you know Pettit's the leader here but Hagen and McCauley they're gonna make a really good trio and in 56-57 the record 34-38 not great but it's good enough in the weak west to get them through to the finals against this Boston Celtics team with a rookie Bill Russell 
Look, they were definitely the huge sort of underdogs of this seat, uh, in this finals. I don't think anyone predicted it going to seven games, uh, but it did. And three of, I think four of the games were within two points. Uh, and I think, just thinking about it logically, there's not a lot of film, but but Pettit is an outside, is a dude who can hit the mid-range against um, Russell, who's an elite rim protector. In a way, Pettit was probably one of the few dudes who is just still going to go out there and get buckets, even against the boss, even against the Bill Russell-led Celtics. Mm. And yes, the two teams matched up very closely, and then it's going to go to the seventh game, and we're going to have one of the best games of all time. Um, it's going to go to double OT, and the um, the the Hawks are going to foul out and run out of players. So their coach is actually going to have to jump in for the last two minutes of game seven in double OT, and he's yeah he's going to come in with uh, the Hawks down two. And the coach himself is actually going to get an opportunity to tie this game up. And there's actually a wee bit of film of him just absolutely bricking a, a jump shot from around um, the free throw line. And Pettit's going to get a chance at a very simple tap in and he's going to miss it. And the Celtics are going to win the first of their many titles. Just want to put it out there that the coach, Alex Hannon, was actually a former player himself. So it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't like Stan Van Gundy cheeking himself in. Yeah. So Ben Kerner was well known for sort of changing coaches around in the team. Who's He's the um, St. Louis Hawks owner. So Hannum sort of started that season as a player and then ended up as a coach because they ran out of coaches, basically. So, yeah, it's not like old, um, who's, a, who's a good example, Greg Popovich. It's not like Popovich yeah. chucking himself in. But also, like, if it was Greg Popovich, they wouldn't have had much choice because I don't think their roster stretched any further than it did. Um, it's actually, like, I just think about watching that. Think about being at Game 7. It goes to double overtime. Both these teams, um, I think the Celtics have made the finals once before. Yeah. And this is the St. Louis Hawks' first finals. Double overtime, you're in the crowd, you're stressed out. And the bloody coach checks himself. Yeah, in. like that last foul and just run out of players. The coach has to jump in. Plays two minutes and it comes down to Bob Pettit missing a putback. I just love look, looking at this box score. Alex Hannum, two minutes, zero for one from the field. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually crazy. And it should be known that Bob Pettit in that, in that nut final game, he had 39 points. And 18 rebounds, 18 yeah. rebounds, that's, fan- that's, yeah. So, and that's something that's going to pop up quite a bit, actually. He was quite a clutch player. He played really well in finals. Yeah, and against really good teams as well. Like, he's well known for turning up against these Celtics teams. In this finals, up against the Boston Celtics, up against one of the all-time defenders, great defenders in Bill Russell, he is averaging uh, 30 points and 18 rebounds, which is just astronomical numbers. Yeah, it's... Absolutely, especially those 18 rebounds, you know, because um, old Bill Russell really hoovered up the rebounds. Too. Yeah. So the, back in those days, you really battled on the boards because those extra possessions meant a lot. I just want to put this out there before we get any further into Bob Pettit's career, but I, um, I did mistake some positions before. So Ed McCauley was the centre. Um, and Cliff Hagen is the... Yeah, Hagen's yeah. the small forward. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was my mistake. That Sorry, Tame. Right, go on, Sam. Um, what happens after that final? Cool. So 
Uh, they're going to go into 57-58, and this team's going to get even better. They're going to have their first winning record with Bob Pettit and improve to 41-31 and and really establish themselves as a dominant team in the West. And it's a bit of a mirror of a season. They're going to go again and meet the Celtics team in the finals. And the one thing I found really interesting about this season is the weight Pettit is going to is going to add. Um, so Sadi talked previously about him being around look 205 pounds, which is around 90 to 95 kilos. Mm. And he is sick to death of being beaten up by these big... Um, big centers and big men down low so he's going to go in this off season and add 35 pounds onto his frame and that's that's essentially when you're looking at players in today's league that's like someone like with jeremy grant jason tatum build um putting on weight to become more of a horford or morris build and for Pettit, that's going to do wonders for his game and in particular his rebounding right numbers are going to go up and there's definitely an improvement in the team record here as well. That's probably part of that. And they're going to go again against the Celtics team in the finals. And old Bill Russell is going to get averaged, are going to get hurt in game three. He's going to hurt his ankle. And basically, it's still going to be close. Even without Russell, these teams are still pretty tight. And it's going to go to game six with the Hawks up 3-2. Russ, Russell's going to come back and play 20 minutes in game six. But just no one can stop Peter on this night in one of the all-time great finals performances. He's going to put up 50 points and 19 rebounds. Apparently, he blocked 12 shots. Can't confirm this. There weren't stats back then. But they only won by two as well. He wasn't putting those points up in a blowout. He put those points up when they needed them, when they needed those points to get the title, and Peter's going to have his first and only title. That's awesome. I mean, it just... I, what is another finals game clinching performance that's on that level? 50 and 19. Yeah. 12 block shots, 19 of 34 from the field, 12 of 15 from the line. Like. I can't Le- think of one. LeBron James, game seven against Golden State. He had a triple double. Yeah. 30 point triple double, I think it was, with the block. But even that statistically doesn't really. No, it doesn't, it doesn't measure up. No. At all. Not at all. No. Yeah, that's that's game has a case for one of the probably the greatest finals game of games of all time. Absolutely. Um, and then this team is just going to get better year on year. Their record's going to improve to forty nine and twenty three. By far the best team in the West, and they're sort of getting close to having a similar record to the Celtics. And it's interesting looking at how they play. There's not a lot of film around, um, but it's pretty clear looking at pace. Um, what they do is they're going, the Celtics on one hand are trying to speed the game up and run the fast break. The Hawks are trying to slow it down and really take advantage of, you know, Hagen and Pettit, etc. in the post, mm. you know, get it down low, take your time, get the best shot and also work hard for those O-boards. And they're going to consistently be a number one sort of team in terms of offense and more of a middle of the road team and sort of in terms of defense. That's so fascinating because you, when you, I actually, I think about this in basketball quite a bit because you, when you think about the slow it down, half court offense, mm. grind it out teams, you always think they're really good in defense. Yeah. But that doesn't always, that isn't always true. It's interesting how they're not true with the St. Louis Hawks team. Yeah. And you'll, I think you know about this a lot more than I do because their reputation with a lot of other teams was that they were really tough 
Um, you'd go to St. Louis and it'd be a, it'd be a fight. You'd be up against yeah. it. But somehow. Sort of like that Pistons team. It's like the Detroit Pistons, Isaiah Thomas team. They had that same reputation. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that the defense didn't sort of align with that. Yeah. The defensive stats weren't there. Whereas there's the fun, fast break Boston Celtics team. We always associate the fun running teams yeah. with potentially having a worse defense. Though I guess actually, if you're getting steals and you're going out on the fast break, then you're probably a pretty good well, I guess a disruptive. Good, a good fast break sport um, built on a good great defense. defense. It's very true, actually. But yeah, it's, it's just in my head the yeah. way they're split. Um, so it's really interesting with the St. Louis Hawks team that yeah, they're a slow team, but they also relied on the offense over the defense. Yeah, and look, talking about how tough they were, there's a there's a really good story from um, one of Wilt's first seasons. He talks about how he hated to go to St. Louis because of how tough these dudes were and he went there one one game and i think it was pettit actually ended up they were fighting for rebound and pettit just punched him in his chin and sent his teeth up through his gums at the top of his mouth so yeah a really tough team um you certainly don't want to play in st louis the the crowds just as hostile but yeah even though this team's improved this season um, this is going to be the first time that since 56-57 they're not going to make that f- the finals. They're going to lose to the Lakers in the conference finals. And the Lakers only had a 33-39 and 39 record, but of course they had Elgin Baylor. And we're sort of seeing these absolute stars sort of trickle into the league now. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at his final sort of two years and what we'd consider his peak seasons... The next season, again, look, their record's still great, 46-29. and 29. Again, they're going to go to the finals against the Celtics. And for me, any sort of argument against the St. Louis team, sure, the first finals was a rookie Bill Russell. Sure, the one they won had, had Bill Russell got injured. But now, 59-60, and 60, they're up against the Celtics, really into the run of this dynasty, and they're still going to take them to seven games. Mm. They're still going to take them the distance. Pettit's still third in MVP voting at this stage. And yeah, Pettit's going to still average 26-15 and 15 in that finals, um, shooting 47% from the field, which was the second highest in the series. And I'd say from there, look, that's probably the end of that, that Hawks-Celtics rivalry. They're gonna, the Hawks are gonna go into the next season. Record's good, 51 and 28, but they're gonna go to the finals again against the Celtics. And this time, the Celtics put them away in five games. And they, the Celtics here, I say, this is where they really just absolutely hit dynasty mode. Pettit's still gonna average 28 and 16. But from here, I think it's fair to say his career's definitely on the slide, Sadi. Yeah, 100%. Oh, it's interesting. It's a, because obviously that ends the finals runs, but um, he actually then goes on after that 60 to 61 season. So he, he goes to the finals for the last time to have probably his best individual season, mm. but his worst season of his, probably the most disappointing season of his career. And then after that, the team does relatively well. They're not as great as they used to be. His career slowly winds down. He's still really good. And so he's got this sort of slow, sad end to a yeah, peak yeah. where the team still competes. They're still quite good, but they just can't get over the hump the way they used to and make it to the finals. Do you have any ideas on what that 
Look, he this team's gonna fall off drastically from sixty to sixty one to the next season. Yeah, it's quite messy actually. So I'll tell you a little bit about Bob um, Pettit's sixty one to sixty two season. So they they go from being in the finals to missing the playoffs altogether, and there's a few reasons for this. But just just to jump in there, their record goes from fifty one and twenty eight to twenty nine and fifty one. Yeah. But before we get into why they were so unsuccessful, individually, you know, he may not have won an MVP, but statistically, this is actually Bob Pettit's, like, best statistical season um, pretty easily. So, so yeah, it's his, high, it's his highest points per game per season. He scores 31.1 points per game. It's his second highest rebounds per game, which is at 18.7 rebounds per game. It's actually... Has like his third highest free throw percentage at seventy seven point one. He averages his most assists per game at three point seven assists per game. So he's got a huge role in the team this mm. year, including being a player coach for the final six games of the season. And that's actually that's the key to it all. The St. Louis Hawks, despite Bob Pettit trying to put them on his back, essentially had one of the most tumultuous seasons you can imagine. They went through three coaches. Yeah. Um, so two proper coaches to start, and then Bob Pettit for six games, which he went four and two in. And they had a pretty big controversy. Sam, do you yeah. want to talk to us about that? Look, the this Hawks team, after the after the 60, uh, 61 season, they're going to draft um, Cleo Hill in their first round, who is supposed to be this absolutely electrifying guard really good finisher just an absolute scorer but he also happens to be african-american and there is a lot of controversy over his rookie season and it's unclear what exactly happened but from what we do know um pettit uh loverdale and hagen were extremely unhappy because Hill's going to come into this team and in his first game he's going to drop 26 points in the NBA as a starting guard. And these three, you know, after maybe five or ten games, are unhappy that they're getting less shots and they're going to come to the coach first. The coach is going to tell them basically that's tough, he's playing well, and then they are going to escalate it to Ben Kerner, the owner, and Kerner is going to go ahead and fire the coach and the next coach that comes in is going to bench Cleo Hill. And he's only going to play about 18 minutes per game on average on that rookie season, which is a far cry from the height that was seen after his first game. And look, there's a lot of questions you have to ask here, especially around race. What role did race play in this all happening? And I guess on one side, if these three, Peter Loverdale and Hagen, could have really just been just straight up racist around this black star coming in and taking away their their shine but it's impossible to tell because there isn't isn't a whole lot of sort of resources around this and I guess on the other side what actually happened in the end is Cleo Hill's gonna not play much that season and then he's gonna get dropped and never play in the NBA again and what I'd say is even if race didn't play a role in him getting benched in St. Louis a team's if he's not African American, surely a team is going to pick him up mm. as a first rounder who showed real promise compared to some of the, excuse me, but some of the bums that are going to be in the league at that point. Surely someone else gives him a shot. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so hard to untie the dynamics between race and like player so status and position. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. at the, at that time and even now because you can see like at the top, yeah, sure, they'll be they'll treat African American players at that time as well as they could, as mm-hmm. well as they, you know, and that even that's still sort of like giving them the bare minimum. But if you weren't one of the top players dominating the league, if you weren't a Bill Russell and Algin Baylor and something like that, well, then put like an average African-American player up against an average white player. I'll yeah. tell you who's probably going to win out. Yeah. There's a reason these teams were like, you know, African-American star player and yeah. white role players. Yeah, that's a really good point. He's, I mean, he's not going to finish the season with great percentages or great stats with his 18 minutes. Um, but that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. This, I mean, the superstar African-American players are going to get a chance, but if you're not a superstar, then they're just going to choose a white guy. Yeah. It's probably a really good way to summarize that. And that happened in a lot of sports. Yeah. But yeah, so that, that was the 61 to 62 season. So Bob Pettit played a blinder by, according to the stats, but they had their worst season. They had some racial controversy and it was, it was just a mess. Um, of a season from there they actually rebound a bit they end up going to the next two straight western conference finals the first of which they lose to the lakers which now have jerry west and Algin baylor and the second of which they lose to the san francisco warriors with wilt chamberlain so not bad not bad teams to lose to at all and teams definitely on the rise you know those lakers dominate until the early 70s wilt chamberlain and the philadelphia warriors until the sort of mid 60s there so if you're thinking the passing of the torch these it's pretty good for the old man um yeah. st louis hawks to still make those western conference finals and then you reach his final season so the final season is probably easily the worst in bob pettit's career in terms of his actual play but that's not really saying too much because bob pettit in the worst season of his career you know he misses 30 games because of knee injuries and because of that he only makes the All-NBA second team. Not good enough. First time in his career, he's missed the All-NBA first team. You know, he's still averaging 22.5 points per game. He's still, he's pulling in 12.4 rebounds, which is the worst of his career. And he's, you know, but he's still playing relatively well. They still make the Western Conference semifinals. But because of those injuries, Bob Pettit hangs up the shoes after that 64-65 to season. Yeah, just a couple of things I want to say there sort of at the end of the season. All those All-NBA teams, All-NBA first teams, he is the starting power forward, the best power forward in the NBA. Mm. And it's like Russell and Chamberlain are sort of jockeying for that that centre spot. Later on, it's going to probably be, you know, Kuzi and Oscar Robinson jockeying for that point guard spot. But it's always Bob Pettit in that first team as the best power forward. Yeah. Um, and secondly, probably one of the craziest stats I've ever heard is players who have averaged at least 20 points in every season they've played. Of retired players, you have Michael Jordan and Bob Pettit. Absolutely ridiculous. So he's going to come into the league and he's already averaging 20, and when he leaves the league, he's still averaging 20. And he's the only player ever to average 20 points and 10 rebounds for every career. So 20 and 10 was his minimum as a player. That's incredible. Yeah, I think the thing about Pettit there, if we sort of look at the span of his career, was just 
So consistent. Consistent dominance, you know. He wasn't, you know, consistently mediocre. He was consistently great. Consistently um, one of, yeah, you're right, the best power forward, one of the handful of best players in the league, one of the best scorers in the league, yeah. um, one of the best rebounders in the league. The sort of, I think, it, when it comes to greatness, greatness isn't just the ability to like turn up once in a while. It's yeah. that consistent winning, that consistent performance. And he, he just um, exemplifies that um, 100%. So just to summarize then, at the end of that section about his career, over the course of his 11-year career, Bob Pettit, 11-time All-Star, um, 11 times All-NBA, especially um, in particular 10 in a row in the first team from when he was drafted, as well as that, after, <laughs> uh, as well as that a two-time MVP, a one-time champion, a four-time All-Star game MVP, Rookie of the Year, two-time scoring champ, he just has the accolades for days. You know, that's a CV that not many can match up with. What does he average for his career? Average for the career, 26.4 points, 16.2 rebounds, the third of all time. behind that's mad. Yeah. Um, 3.0 assists, which for his time, pretty good. You know, this is one of the best players of all time, easily. Yeah. Yet... You know, when Sam and I were discussing this before, you know, while we're just researching this episode, we're talking about his legacy. Despite all of that, Bob Pettit is, I think, easily, like, the most forgotten NBA superstar of all time. Yeah, and for me it's interesting because obviously a part of that is the time aspect. He played a lot longer ago, and that that makes sense. But then when you look a bit deeper, and me and Sadie have agreed, Pettit is a player Far better than Koozie and far better than Mikan as well. But I pulled out old Google Trends and Bob Koozie, you're more likely to search Bob Koozie three times more likely actually and almost twice as likely to search George Mikan. So it's really interesting. Why why is this dude not remembered like all the other old timers? Yeah. So Sam and I had a bit of a back and forth about this and we've come up with a... Um, and we sort of talked about other NBA, like, superstars. And we'll get into some of them as we do our series. You know, people like Moses Malone, Algin Baylor, um, people like that who aren't remembered the same way as other superstars. And we've come up with a bit of a framework as to why some people are remembered and some people aren't. So we'll sort mm. of work through that a bit. And then we'll, um, and then we'll sort of, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about what players fit and don't fit. And then we'd love to actually genuinely hear your thoughts after if you listen mm. to this and want to have a yarn about this because i think I, i'm really happy with what we've come up with so essentially we've got this idea there are sort of three three categories that help a superstar player be remembered um in the sort of cultural zeitgeist and the sort of popular mm. discussion so at the most basic level at the very you know the key stuff that we'd want to think about you've got the player themselves and by that, we're talking three main things. Their on-court level of play. So just how good and dominant they were as a player individually. Their style of play. So, you know, when I'm talking about style of play, I may be talking about, say, like, Kyrie Irving and his really beautiful style of play. Mm. Um, his, you know, his dribble package, his, like, layup game off the glass, just how interesting... It is, how beautiful it is to watch and how we'll remember that. 
Then we're talking about innovation as well. So we're talking about like the Bob Cousy, you know, how much did this person push forward the game mm. in their individual position? The second category we talk about is their team. So under the team, we're thinking of factors such as the market that the team's in, you know, whether you're in the New York Knicks and it's a big market, or whether you're in the Milwaukee Bucks and it's a small market. We're talking about the success of the team. How dominant were they? How successful were they? How many finals did they get to? And how well they remember because of that. And then we're talking about the rivalries the team are involved in. You know, how much is their story and their story with another team part of the overall story of NBA history? Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because you think about how a lot of players, pretty much every single player you remember there, as a player, their legacy is tied in with the team they played on. Mm. Michael Jordan played for the Bulls, you know. Kobe Bryant played for the Lakers, etc. The Celtics, Yeah. yeah. So it's inevitable that... How much a player is remembered by is going to be tied in with that team they played for. Yeah. And then the third and final category that we think really defines, well, sort of sets how well a player is remembered is the off-court stuff. And here we're talking about things like, I mean, as basic as their personality. I mean, mm. Bob Pettit, love his game. Yeah. Couldn't find anything about him as a person, really. Apart from the fact that he worked in finance after his NBA yeah. career. And you contrast that with someone like Alan Iverson. Or even Cozy, who we did last week. Exactly. The amount of character that oozes from them. Um, then we're also talking about marketing and marketability. That sort of ties into personality. But, yeah. you know, how many advertisements, how many like TV shows, radio shows, how much they really put themselves out there. And then finally, you're talking about their sort of like their advocacy stuff, how involved they were mm. politically socially how much do they push the basket in terms of what people are talking about um where whether you know it may be bill russell talking about race relations yeah uh but maybe again going back to alan iverson pushing the boat on you know culture and style um so those were our three main categories the player themselves on the court the team and then the player off the court though you know factors from all three play a large role and sort of determining how well a player's going to be remembered and all-time great's going to be remembered or how well they may not be. Yeah, and when we look at Pettit, um, it's clear sort of where he's lacking and why he isn't remembered as much as these other other 50 superstars. Look, no one can doubt he's got the on-the-court uh, success. He's definitely got the quality of play. He's an absolute superstar. But in terms of his style, I mean... He is innovative being a mid-range shooting big, but, you know, the jump shot's not new. He's not inventing anything Mm. here, and there isn't really going to be any players that are sort of going to follow in his footsteps either. So I'd say, you know, when you're watching this Hawks team and the way way Pettit plays, it's probably going to be quite boring compared to, you know, watching this fast-running Celtics team. Definitely. Like a player I think of and I think about how they won't ever really be remembered for their style of play, um, despite their greatness, is Tim Duncan. Yeah. I think he's a good equivalent. Tim Duncan, the big fundamental, he's almost remembered for how fundamentally boring he was. Yeah. Well, fundamentally fascinating. He's yeah. so good to watch because of the fundamentals. But, you know, he's not. he doesn't have this exciting style of play that's super unique. He just plays this, like, good old-fashioned face-up game. He mm. can score... As much as you, you know, if you really need him to score, he'll go out and do it. And Bob Pettit could score like nothing else, but it's very simple moves, 
Very straightforward moves. He's not living above the rim. He's not pulling off wild a finishes. Of, a lot of sc- scoring from the free throw line. <clears throat> yeah. A lot of scoring from offensive rebounds. Um, nothing, yeah, overly flashy. Yeah. And so, you know, we don't remember Bob Pettit um, the same way I remember Bob Cousy, flashy playmaker. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And yeah, I guess so. The second aspect is that team, uh, that team criteria. And Pettit had the unfortunate luck of playing for a team in St. Louis that was going to pretty much leave St. Louis as soon as he finished up his career. Pretty much. So 58-59 season, right before the 58-59 season, um, their owner sells them to a new owner and then they move to Atlanta to become the Atlanta Hawks. And there's a couple of things there, which is why he won't get remembered. I mean, A, St. Louis at the time was quite a small market. They struggled. The reason they were sold... I mean, the owner was an hat, and <laughs> so many interesting stories about him. But one of the reasons they were sold is actually their turnout was for a very successful team for the on-court stuff. You know, they're making four finals, they're playing in multiple Western Conference finals. They were pulling in four or 5,000 people at a time. So they weren't a popular team in their own market, um, especially as you get into the 60s and, you know, St. Louis gets a football team and a baseball team that managed to pull in more crowds than them. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a small market and also, um, yeah, moving to Atlanta. And this point was made on an article we read online meant that, you know, he's, it's not like the Lakers remembering George Mikan or the Celtics remembering Bob Cousy. Yeah. When was the last time the Atlanta Hawks talked about Bob Pettit? Yeah. You know, and the championship they won. It's it's a whole different name. It's a whole nother banner. Yeah. So it's a different team. Um, And also the, like, Obviously, it's a really long time ago, and you you sort of think that players will be remembered equally. But when you when you actually when I actually look back, it's really surprising the way people do remember. Mm. And it's you know the the fathers, <laughs> the grandfathers passing down those tales of these players, you know. And with St. Louis moving as soon as George Mike and uh, sorry, as soon as Bob Pettit retired, you don't have the likes of you know Bill Simmons going on about that Celtics team and. That's feeding it. on that information there's no one there sort of advocating for how great Bob Pettit was absolutely and then the other thing about their team is that despite having great success in the 50s and mm. I, I would challenge you to find a team they had apart from the Celtics and I'll get to this you know they're one of the most successful teams of all time unfortunately they're caught in the era of the Boston Celtics. Yeah. And so they become just another team. Just a footnote, really. Yeah, just another team that the Boston Celtics beat on route to championships alongside, you know, the very sexy Los Angeles Lakers yeah. who had Algin and who had Jerry and then who later had Wilt, you know? Yeah, like of of the great rivals of the Boston Celtics, the Philadelphia Warriors, yeah, the San Francisco Warriors and the Philadelphia Warriors, which had Wilt Chamberlain, or the Lakers, which had Baylor, West, and Chamberlain. I think the St. Louis Hawks with Bob Pettit, yeah. Cliff Hagen, yeah. Ed McCauley, Clyde Lovellette are like the least sexy of those options yeah. and definitely the most forgotten, you know? So, yeah, despite their team success, they never, you know, they were in a small market. That They weren't popular in their market. They moved. Yeah. And they're just not remembered amongst their peers and as a rival of the Celtics for a number of reasons. So he doesn't have the on-court game to be remembered apart from his stats and accolades. He doesn't have the team to be remembered by. And then we can talk about the off-court stuff, but there's not much to talk about. Yeah. Because 
you know, this this podcast is very basketball focused because unlike Koozie, we're not going to delve into a rich off court life. Does it does it does it exist? Yeah, I'm sure he had a really lovely family. Yeah. You know, like yeah. he got good jobs and good banks in Baton Rouge. He went back to Louisiana, raised a good family. But he wasn't founding the players union. He wasn't like Mike, and he didn't start the um, ABA. Yeah, you know. And all of that sort of feeds into how well you're remembered because these players are going to come in the 80s and 90s and see Koozie and Mike and doing these things mm. and hear stories about them and yeah. the legacy sort of continues. It's actually really interesting, I think, if you look at the sort of players that we remember now, think about how many of them who, after their playing careers, were coaches, um, mm. were in front offices and were in media and how much more remembered they are because after their playing career, they kept being talked about yeah. and they kept talking in the media. Someone like Isaiah Thomas, who was like quite a good point guard, one of the best point guards of all time, but actually made like a handful of all NBA teams. But post his playing career, and he won two championships, um, but he only won one finals MVP. He was only the best team on that championship once. Um, post his playing career, he was a coach. He was a general manager um, and he was in the media. He still is in the media. So because we talk about him so much, he's just in our minds. So when we think best point guards of all time, we're more likely to point to him than we are to maybe an equivalent point guard who's also got five, six all NBAs. Oh, he didn't even have five or six all NBAs. I, I just love how every episode, completely different topic. In some way, you managed to drag in Isaiah and just <laughs> shit on him. <laughs> this is one of your biggest hobbies. Um, but you get what I mean, right? Yeah, I think, I guess, m- me thinking of a s- such, like, I guess, a comparison, um, I mean, look at Shaq versus David Robinson. Yeah. Look, Shaq, probably the better of the two, absolute beast, but the way we remember Shaq through him coming on TNT yeah. versus David Robinson, who you don't see, I mean, the contrast is huge. Absolutely. I 100% agree there. Yeah, I think there's plenty of players that fit this mold. I think if I think of a player who's forgotten because they shun television and shun the media and shun basketball after their career, um, Moses Malone. Yeah. Two-time MVP, champion, best rebounder of all time. But because people love talking about Dennis Rodman, when you talk, ask people who are the best rebounder of all time, and I maybe there's an argument that they're both as good as each other or Rodman's a bit better. But so many people just straight up say Rodman without yeah. even thinking of Malone because they've heard of Rodman and they haven't heard of Malone. Yeah. And that like that character, that personality, that like the amount you're on TV, the amount you're talking or being talked about plays such a role in how you're remembered. And here's a man, Bob Pettit, who's yeah. honestly like the footnote in every article you read is like he was a banker or yeah. he was in finance. It doesn't even agree sometimes. Sometimes they say he went to work for good banks. Other times they say he works in finance. Yeah, no one really cares, <clears throat> yeah. I guess, which is really sad. Or he didn't want them to care. Maybe it was really yeah. good for him. I guess we're sort of not here saying who people should remember. Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, people are going to remember remember what players they want to for whatever reason. I guess what I find interesting is sort of why players... Uh, over or under remembered relative to their actual basketball ability yeah and i'd say this framework's really good for actually you know if you're thinking about great players in some way wondering why you're thinking about this player 
why this player comes to mind. It's a really good way to think about what factors push them to your front of the, the front of your mind when you're trying to think of a certain thing. So with all that in mind, with our discussion about how we remember great players and how great Bob Pettit was compared to how little he's remembered, how does that for you, Sam, then stack up in terms of how you think about Bob Pettit in terms of that all-time listing of power forwards? Yeah, I think I, I really like sort of splitting it into best player and greatest player. Yeah. Um, so best player being how good they were at, at, at basketball and greatest looking at the whole resume and what they achieved mm. in the league at the time. And look, if you're looking at greatest power forwards, I think behind Tim Duncan is Bob Pettit. He's right there in second. You can't argue Carl Malone or Charles Barclay or even KG, to me, are better players when you look at Bob Pettit's resume, what he achieved in terms of the team's success and just the sheer dominance as an individual. Mm. Looking at best players, that's a lot tougher because, again, you're sort of you're, you're comparing errors. But I would probably put him slightly behind those three guys, behind Barkley, Malone and Garnett. Just for the pure fact, there wasn't as much competition back then. Mm. Players weren't as athletic. But I don't think the gap is going to be as big as anyone sort of expects it to be. Interesting. I actually, I this is very boring for our listeners, but I like effectively agree with you here. That, you know, you know I'm a big fan of splitting it best and greatest yeah. as well. And I think if you're thinking, we'll go, with, we'll go with best first because we just talked about that. I think if you're thinking best... For me, it's personally really hard to put Pettit up with those other... So if I think the best power forwards of all time, in my mind, you've got, obviously, Timmy D, um, Carmelo, Charles Barkley, Kevin Garnett, and Dirk Nowitzki is a name that you Mm. didn't say, which I think Dirk Nowitzki is probably comparable to Kevin Garnett and Charles Barkley at that level. I think in terms of, actually, if you look at his numbers, like, his scoring is probably, he's probably the best scorer out of all five mm. of those. Yeah. And he's so efficient and like the way he opened the offense up for the rest of his teammates. Um, I think, yeah, he's definitely for me up there with those guys. I think those five for me are easily the best and I just yeah. can't put Pettit with, especially his lack of athleticism. Yeah. And maybe he'd have that athleticism in this day yeah. and age. He'd have the training. He'd have, yeah, the modern day nutrition and training from young to give him that burst, yeah. to give him that jump, to give him that speed, right? Um, which you can train into you. Like, he's probably what their level of athlete was like yeah. with his training. But when you just compare ability, I just I can't put him up there. But if you're talking accolades, again, you've got Timmy D right at the very top. You're talking about greatest careers in terms of power forward. And I'd probably put him, and this is a personal preference, but i put, in terms of greatness levels for power forwards I'd go Timmy D right at the very top you can't argue with two MVPs five championships across like three decades that level of defense yeah the all NBAs all of that you can't argue with that then I'd probably put Karl Malone in second terms of his greatness on his own I think the length of his career like his scoring two MVPs again the late all NBA defenses at the end as well like, that man was, like, love him or hate him as a person, and I definitely hate him as a person for the things that he did. His overall span of his career, making those finals, even if he fell at those finals, 
He made the finals more than Charles Barkley, Kevin Garnett, Dirk Nowitzki, right? Yeah. Oh, Nowitzki made two. So he made the finals more than them apart from Nowitzki. He scored more points, pulled down more rebounds, played for longer, played at a higher level longer. He made more All-NBA teams, made all-defensive teams. Um, I just think he was that good, that consistently good for that long that I'd put him at that second tier. Then I'd have Barkley, Nowitzki, and Garnett with their one MVPs each. They're like high peaks, but you know not as long-lived careers as Malone in that third tier. I'd probably put Bob Pettit. I think Karl Malone is like the modern-day equivalent of him. The way yeah. he could score, yeah. the way he pulled down rebounds, yeah. the way he was tough, the way he had like consistently excellent teams yeah. that essentially came up against really great teams in the finals or Western Conference both, finals. Both, um, both grew up in Louisiana as well. Yeah. And, you know, both played with that sort of face-up game. Malone, obviously, with a lot more athleticism. Yeah. Especially early on in his career, people forget about that. Be a later in his career, definitely loved that mid-range jump shot. I think, and both, yeah, tough. Yeah. So I, I probably, I'd go Timmy D, then this greatness power forwards, I'd go Timmy D for me, then Malone and Pettit. Yeah. As that second tier. Yeah. But I just want to put this out there. I think Bob Pettit also gets points because up until sort of 1983, when Barkley and Malone come into the league, he's hands down, I think, the best power forward. You maybe have like Alvin Hayes. Yeah. Or Wes Unseld, but they're just not on the same level of dominance um, that he had. Yeah. So that's, that's my sort of, sorry, it's quite long. No. I did, but I yeah, really that'd be like my that. take on I it. Like, I like the tiering. Yeah. It's a really good way to approach it. And I guess that flows on really well to the last segment, which is how well does Bob Pettit fit in the modern NBA? And I find it really interesting that Pettit's actually come out and he has said, you know, there are holes in my game that mean I wouldn't fit in today's NBA. But if I play today, I'd fill these holes. You know, I'd, imp- I'd work on my ball handling. I'd be more than like a one or two dribble, two dribble dude. I'd be more athletic. I have access to the training, the trainers, the facilities, all of that that current NBA players do. But he also said, despite all of this, he, despite the pay, despite the fame, he would still not change the era he lived, he played in. He still wouldn't change that he played in the 60s, which I think is really cool. I think, I mean, there's a couple of things there that just like, I think you picked the best sort of things that he could have said to summarize actually like a lot of our podcasts. You know, the whole, you know, if he was in this day and age, he'd, he'd expand his game. Mm. You think about the effort he put into his free throw shooting. Yeah. You think about the weight he put on during his career to make himself better. And yeah, you can tell actually from his development as a player in the 50s that actually, yeah, as a player in the 2000s, 2010s, He'd be the sort of, yeah, of course he would add to his game. Mm. You know, he's just that sort of person. He'd work hard um, to succeed no matter what the bar was. Yeah. Um, and But then the other thing that sticks out is him saying that he wouldn't change the area he played in. You know, this is a guy, which you said this earlier, he said that winning the state championship, would was it like his second favourite thing? Like equal. Two, e- yeah. One and two equal, yeah. Two, second, yeah. And... That's a man who's at peace and really happy with the yeah. life he's led. Yeah. You know, we can talk about him not being remembered and him not having the same legacy, maybe. But that's a man who's fucking stoked with the things he did and just humble about that. I, I think that's really, really cool. That's awesome. 
Yeah. But just for fun, I've made a couple of hybrid players oh, of what yeah. Bob Pettit could look like. <laughs> okay, so we've yes. got um, we've got low end. So this is sort of low end. We're looking at Lamarcus Aldridge um, in terms of that build and athleticism, but sort of give him a bit more rebounding tenacity and just sort of that aggression that you might see in someone like Dennis Rodman or even someone like DeAndre Jordan, just that fight for rebounds, offensive skill. Bro, I think you're underrating Lamarcus Aldridge here. Lamarcus Aldridge was one of the top scorers of the 2010s. I think. Oh, shut up! If you're gonna do it like a, you can't. No. Lamarcus Aldridge was fantastic. Like consistently, he is a consistently great player. But like, if you, yeah, maybe he needs to be a bit more aggressive. But you don't score 48 points on jump shots against OKC in the 2016 playoffs without being an aggressive player. Yeah, but you don't score 50 and 19 in the finals without sort of being upskilled from LaMarcus Aldridge. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll give you that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, low. So, a bit more dog in him. So, LaMarcus Aldridge, but a bit shorter. He doesn't have that size and a bit more dog in him. And then, just for fun, upskilled, let's go AD, a oh. bit smaller. Got that offensive game. Take a bit away from that defensive end and that athleticism, but add on to that rebounding and we'd probably have like a peak what Bob Pettit could look like in today's league. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering, just for the white boy comparison, Kevin Love. Oh, yeah, let's do the white... Yeah. No, Kevin Love has that back-to-the-basket game. He's a bit... Yeah. He's a lot heavier than Pettit, actually. No, I think that's wrong. Um, who's a six-foot-nine... Oh, you've... Yeah, Sabonis, actually. Yeah. Baby... Yeah, Demantis Sabonis. Because he, yes, the skill... He's got the skill. He's a bit more back to the basket than he's Pettit. Definitely, that's one thing. He's a lot um, more back to the basket. Pettit, you see him scoring a lot in the mid-range and even from three in today's league. Whereas, yeah, Sabonis um, likes... But yeah. Sabonis has that rebounding game, right? Yeah, he does have the rebounding game. He's got the passing game, which I get, um, think Bob Pettit also didn't really have. Yeah. A huge passing game either. Hmm. I think we'll sort of agree that there's not one player um, in the current league that represents Bob Pettit because he's so unique and great in his in his own right. I thought the whole point of what we said was he wasn't super unique and great in his own right as a player. He was just like a boring face up. I, I think it's gotta well, be not- Tim- I think it's gotta be Timmy D. Take away oh. the take away the defence. Lessen the defence, but you think about something like Timmy D no. the face up bank shot, I could see Bob Pettit making a shot like that. The Take someone off the dribble, two dribble to the basket. The Timmy D special. Timmy D's almost too slow. Yeah. And too efficient. Pettit's still, he's still like, your, he's still an absolute volume scorer. He's, he is he's a, a scorer first. He's a, he is a scorer first and foremost. Um, yeah. Carl Malone, I think, is probably the closest we're going to get to any sort of modern player. Okay, you talk about outside shooting, power forward. Yeah, Nowitzki. A shorter, no. a shorter Nowitzki. You, no, you can't. You can't compare them because you're sort of assuming a lot about Pettit's jump shot, and yeah. you're, also, <laughs> you you're also taking away from a lot away from his rebounding. Yeah. Okay, so that that was actually surprisingly difficult. I think Ali May. I think Lamarcus Aldridge. Yeah, Lamarcus but, Aldridge is a good comparison. Yeah, but with more dog. Yeah. And probably more capacity for greatness. Yeah. I reckon. Yeah, that'd probably be about right. 
But that Lamarcus Orridge mid-range game. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That that summarizes imperfectly, and it's very face-up. Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. So that's Bob Pettit. I mean, I think today's ep- this has been a really cool episode to record. I mean, we talked about a guy that, to be honest, I knew n- nothing about, and have been able to actually delve into a pretty a interesting era in NBA history. Talk about that fifties era, not just about the Celtics, but about you know, one of their lesser known rivals, one of the yeah. forgotten great teams of that era, what they looked like, um, and then talk about, delve a little bit into actually NBA superstardom, how it works, and why we remember players the way we remember players. So I've really enjoyed this actually, it's been bloody cool, and I hope all of you listening today have taken away something from it, whether it's in a newfound appreciation for Bob Pettit, for 1950s basketball, the player who never gets enough respect, the power forward. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Sam? How have you found it? Nah, I found it obviously really enjoyable. Um, delving back and looking at this dude who I'd never heard of and looking at this as numbers for me was astounding that someone like that is not talked about. Mm. But it was also really cool to have that discussion around how we do remember players and we see that that is that is for a reason there's a reason he's not remembered yeah and by the sounds of it he's probably pretty happy knowing in himself how great he really was absolutely so anyway that's it for january um thank you so much for listening like we said we're going to do a new episode every month going out from here we've got a plan we've got a slack type thing and so who are we coming up at them with next week next is month it, Sam. is it bill russell next? i think it's bill russell i can't wait oh let's go yeah it should be awesome and we'll feel free to drop us a line with any feedback any messages or if you just even want to have a chat about basketball i um, would love to hear from you yeah love any feedback good or bad oh and keep an eye out as well sorry there's big announcements at the end but we're also going to be dropping an instagram a yeah. basketball history instagram so keep your eyes peeled thanks team catch ya And to close out this episode and also introduce us into next week's uh, star player we're covering, uh, we have Bob Pettit recalling his first final series against this Boston Celtics team and also sharing his thoughts on the great Bill Russell. It was a great series. I think the thing I remember most about that series is that uh, we lost the seventh game in Boston in double overtime. And as I recall was something like 125 to 123 was the final score in two overtimes. With only 15 seconds left, Alex Hannum fouls Jim Luskatov, who goes to the line for two. Luskatov hit one of the two to put Boston up by a pair. With one second left, the Hawks missed two shots in close, and the buzzer sounded to end the game. Bill Russell jumped for joy, and the Celtics dynasty was born. I think Bill Russell's the greatest player that ever played. I've ever seen, I think. In my humble opinion, if you know, if you ever started a team and said of all the players ever played, I can pick one player, I would start with Bill Russell.